Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. We're here with Ruth Shogay, OD, MPH, FAAO. Dr. Shogay is the rising chair of the ASCO Diversity and Cultural Competency Committee, and she's also a faculty member at uh, Salus University, Pennsylvania College of Optometry, where she serves on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Dr. Shogay, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Marjolyn. It's great to be here. Now, when you started your career, you didn't, was diversity, a diversity and inclusion committee a, a, a thing? No, that's, <laughs> historically speaking, um, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee on campus started a couple of years ago. Um, and it was really the first of its kind. And when I started in optometry, I wasn't thinking about this part of um, healthcare or optometry really at all. I um, had, after completing my four years at PCO, I did a residency also at PCO in pediatrics and vision therapy. And that is really where uh, my specialty has been and kind of where I've I've lived these last few years and um, transitioned into also working with traumatic brain injury and concussion uh, patients. And then I kind of decided a few years ago to go back to school (laughs) to get my master's in public health um, with having some idea of wanting to look more into um, traumatic brain injuries and the health disparities that we see in that population. And then once I started my coursework, I really kind of evolved in looking at health disparities in general, as well as cultural competency. And the timing just kind of worked out where as I was transitioning into that in my coursework, I started sitting on these different committees um, and it's all come together now and, and makes a lot of sense. And the timing is really good to, to be having these very important and necessary conversations. You mentioned these are important discussions, and and certainly it's not just in in and in and around campuses or in and around healthcare providers' offices. It's it's really kind of uh, dominated some of the news um, recently in in terms of, of social justice uh, disparities, uh, access to to healthcare, those kinds of things. How did this evolve with your with your master's uh, in in public health work? I, I the the nice thing about being in school is that you have a very structured and organized way of receiving and analyzing information. Um, and I think being in school provided that for me because it's very easy to get busy with work and, and committees. And I was still working full time, but really had this these dedicated moments. And so. One of my courses, um, and I, I completed my my MPH at Temple University. One of my uh, course courses was vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. and really they're looking specifically at um, the different um, the disparities between populations within populations, and then I followed that up a semester or two afterwards with maternal and child health and. Interestingly enough, it was not my first my first choice in, in coursework, but ended up being very important nonetheless in continuing to highlight 
you know, there are very um, well-documented disparities in healthcare, um, mm-hmm. you know, in infant and maternal mortality and, and just in um, the, well, the overall wellness of people living with chronic systemic diseases and how all of that relates to optometry because we're managing people with chronic um, health diseases that require um, close care with, with their optometrist, with their eye care provider. So it's, it seemed like it was different, but it was very relevant to what I was doing. And then, you know, what's interesting about uh, the coronavirus and everything that's, that's happening now is that uh, the coronavirus, it, it, it made things feel very jarring and, and put a lot of things front and center, such as this, these health disparities. But the truth of the matter is that they always existed. You know, the, the virus and, and all of us being home just really kind of opened wide and made us all see the injustices in our healthcare system that's occurring the injustices that people have simply with being able to access the healthcare system. And then when you pair that um, with social justice and the murder of George Floyd, everything just, again, we're home, we're watching TV, we're much more tuned in with with what's going on outside of our our normal routines and worlds. We could all see for ourselves that um, there is some serious injustice that's going on in this country that needs to be addressed. So really just, you know, the, the timing of everything and being able to um, be a part of this conversation, but also offer any kind of guidance in how particularly educational facilities, so optometry schools, should be educating their, their students to prepare for the world that they're going to work in. And the world they're working in is multidimensional. <laughs> It's multi-ethnic, it's multicultural, um, and we serve a lot of different people. And not only do we need to be clinically competent, but we also need to be cultural competent. And that's that's what I've been um, had the opportunity to focus some of my energies on. So, so um, yeah, what what are some of the cultural competency concepts that that you would like to share with students and faculty? <laughs> Yes. So I, I, um, I teach a healthcare diversity and professionalism course on campus. It's to our first year students. And um, we, the, the kind of overarching premise is when you're doing kind of cultural competent work is attitude. I also like to call it awareness because sometimes people really aren't aware of who they are, let alone being able to relate to other people. So awareness Acquiring knowledge, so giving them information and data about health disparities, understanding what bias is, and, and then the skills, the, the tangible skills that can be um, used in a clinical setting is kind of how we go through the course. And I've done a, um, a couple of workshops as well with faculty and, and some administrators um, covering the same thing. So um, part of the cultural competence piece and and it's there are several aspects to the cultural competence and again awareness being one of them um, relevancy and then finally cultural humility and I think that's a word we don't use quite a lot cultural competence really speaks to knowledge and skills and then you wrap that in with awareness 
But the humility really speaks to putting this into practice every day and committing to putting this into practice every day where you're acknowledging that there are differences in your approach to life. There there are differences Mm -hmm. in your patient's approach to life and their healthcare and how we can come together as, you know, not just as doctor and patient, but human to human in order to get the best results, um, the best health outcomes for, for our patients. So we, you know, I, I teach about um, different, uh, some, you know, bias skills and understanding what um, um, implicit biases and, and um, different tools to help uh, elicit health beliefs. So, you know, we come from a very medical oriented model of healthcare and really turning that or transitioning that into patient-centered healthcare, which I think, honestly, optometrists are really at the forefront of being able to do and to do well, because we tend to spend more time with our patients, you know, compared to some other doctors. We can take the time to establish those relationships. So it's really speaking the importance of, of, of that. So, so what's an example of a, a approaching a, a, a patient with, with humility. I mean, it's, a, you know, I, I'm imagining that um, the, the big issues, you know, the, this is the way it's done kind of things. But I, I mean, I, I'm guessing there's kind of a, an, a, an unconscious bias in play here too. Right. So a big part of uh, humility, it sounds simple, but um even in our day-to-day lives, it's one of the tools that we all need to use. And it's really just to listen. Um, and part of being able to listen well, particularly if there's a language barrier, is making sure you have the, the appropriate tools to meet the needs of your patient. So, you know, with technology, it really allows us to, to have those tools to communicate with people in which I don't share a common language. Um, so that's probably one of the the biggest areas is being able to take care of someone when you don't speak their language and using the tools that are available and the technology that you're, that's available. But really listening and asking um, patients in their own words to describe what they think is going on, why they think it's happening to them, and um, what they think the best treatment is for their outcome. And it's not always, it's not our natural instinct necessarily to take that kind of approach. You know, it, as an optometrist, I find a prescription, I prescribe the glasses, and you should be able to be fine, <laughs> right? But that's not always the case. You know, sometimes I will have, and I, I take care of a pediatric population, so I'll have the parents who seem maybe a little skeptical at first and will say, well, does do they really need these glasses? Is it going to make their eyes worse? And what are some other things that I can do? And so it's really taking the time to hear them, um, not be dismissive of people's concerns um, or their questions, and uh, taking the time to present options, because maybe there is more than one option. If it's a concern to say, you know, maybe in with this particular prescription, I could lower it a little bit, and then we can try some of these other therapeutic options, um, which may be helpful. Um, if we can back it up with research, ideally, that's what we'd like to do. Um, and so, again, it's just listening and taking the time and allowing the patient to participate in the decision making. 
So that's really what, what I try to, to bring across. So um, let, let's talk about uh, ASCO's diversity um, outreach and, and even at, at, at Pennsylvania uh, College of Optometry, Salus University. Well, there are a few organizations that have embarked on a few initiatives to really um, make this, put this in the forefront of everybody's um, minds, as well as um, the things that they plan to do to to make it better. So um, as you mentioned, Black people, and I am Black, um, are underrepresented in the industry. We, in, in, a, in an optometry school, we're maybe three to 4% um, of a class. Um, and sometimes if that, you know, that's not always a guarantee from year to year. Um, and, and roughly 13% of the U.S. population, I believe. 13% of the U.S. population. So what um, one organization, Black Eye Care Perspective, put out to the industry is that optometry, the entire optometric industry, uh, industry should be representative of the U.S. population. Therefore, in any, every corner of optometry, there should be 13% um, Black people, whether it's uh, part of the student body, start part of the faculty body, in corporate uh, America, in um, glasses, contacts, manufacturing, every corner of optometry should be representative of the country. And we've seen a lot of success in that in, in other populations, which has been really great. But we've continued to see this lag um, specifically with um, the Black population in the U.S. and optometry representation. Um, so ASCO is partnering with uh, Black Eye Care Perspective and some of their initiatives, um, as well as the NOA, the National Optometric Association, which for uh, many decades has been the organization that represented the interests of uh, minority populations within optometry. So mm -hmm. it's been, it's yeah, it's been a good it's been good to see, you know, different organizations really come together to strengthen um, the mission and the goals and to make sure that they're achievable. So those people who, who say to you, why? Why should it be equal? I mean, how do you, how do you answer a question like that? Why should there be equality in optometry? Well... The fact of the matter is, is the U.S. population is changing the demographics. And so we are um, in a in a phase and will be for the next um, two to three decades where we're seeing um, a large growth in the minority portion of the population. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we should strive to be representative of that, you know, and there there's enough um, evidence that says that. Um, there is better healthcare outcomes with um, patient-doctor concordancy. So that means if I share some cultural background, some language, or something with my doctor as a patient, I'm more likely to adhere to any of the treatment protocols and have better healthcare outcomes. So at the end of the day, it's not just about, well, let's make sure you know our schools um, look more diverse. At the end of the day, we are trying to position ourselves to best take care of our patients. And by that is by having um, 
an, um, a, a profession that's representative of the U.S. population. And so we want to make sure that as optometrists, as a, a profession, we're able to provide that for our, pa- for our patients. And as we continue to progress as a, p- a profession, you know, we're going to have more of a, a primary care role. We already do and we'll continue to do, and we may see that continue to expand a primary care role in our patient's health um, mm-hmm. and a public health role in the society's health and population health. So it's really important that um, optometry as well as other health professions are acknowledging the changing U.S. demographics and are ready um, so that people don't need to suffer and go blind and and have you know treatable conditions um, that could have been prevented or better cared for had they had um, either culturally represented doctors or culturally competent doctors. Because for me, both are important. We want the representation, but we want everybody to be competent and able to take care of the population. Right, right. So how much pressure does this put on you and other Black women in optometry, Black men in optometry? You're you're representing a a demographic. You're a a leader, a mentor. Um, You are uh, perhaps the bringing that additional uh, touchstone to to the patient procedure that's do you feel the burden beyond your role as a as a professor m- mentor things like that um it's do i feel the burden i don't know if i would call it burdensome because um working it, you know, as as an optometrist, I feel like I've always, in some ways, either consciously or subconsciously, have had to have been representative of, you know, a Black person, a Black female, a Black female optometrist. Um, mm-hmm. Those things don't ever really go away. And I think that's pretty unique um, to Black people and other minorities is that uh, they're sometimes representative of the whole. So, I can't necessarily say that my experience is everyone's experience, mm-hmm. but I felt that, um, you know, <laughs> you grow, I, it causes me to think about some of the thing, the, the lessons my, my parents have imparted on me that you're not just representing yourself, you're representing the family and, and those kind of things that you kind of grow up hearing. So I've always kind of had that ingrained in me, but I mm-hmm. think, um, what is happening is that it provides a really great opportunity for um, pre-existing and newly existing organizations to actually work together. Um, and it's not so much as a burden, but just really an opportunity for success. So I think it's really exciting, the time that we're in now, and we have an opportunity to really make impactful, sustainable change. And so I think um, the people that I have the opportunity to work with and, and the new people I'm getting the opportunity to, to meet and talk with, it's just, it's, it feels good to, to be heard and to be part of a team that is going to make lasting change. And it should be everybody's 
so-called burden. <laughs> right, right. And and it's interesting that you mentioned the, the cultural competency falls squarely into everybody's uh, lap. Everybody's responsibility mm-hmm. is is to learn those strategies. And mm-hmm. and how do you do that? How how does somebody listening say, you know, there's probably things I I don't do well or that I don't know enough about to know if I'm doing them well. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's the next step? Well, um, part of it is continuing to just offer educational opportunities, and I'm partnering with. Um, an organization to to offer webinars to um, practicing optometrists. And I think right now we're still in the phases of just, you know, awareness, being aware of who you are and and your surroundings. And um, I think a lot of times people maybe trick themselves into thinking, well, when I go home to practice, I'm, I'm going back to my town or, or whatever. And as, you know, as you're, professor when I'm teaching, I don't know where you're going to end up. Mm-hmm. So I take it as part of my responsibility to prepare you for whatever, you know, area or corner of this country or beyond, because you could end up being an international optometrist um, and providing the tools to be able to successfully navigate that. And part of it is people have to realize it's not a one and done thing. You can't just read one article, attend one webinar, and think you've got got it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what makes it a bit different, not even different. It's really the same as any kind of clinical competence. We Each state requires for continued licensure that you have to con- uh, complete continuing education hours so right. that you remain clinically competent and able to practice in your state of choice. I, I, I view cultural competence the same way. Um, and while it's not necessarily a requirement for licensure at this time, I think it's an important piece for people to continue to um, educate themselves about and um, pursue pursue um, that knowledge and skill level like any other clinical competence. And so that's, that's part of what... Um, part of the messaging. And, and again, I think sometimes people just aren't aware. So we're really at this, this oper- at a, at a place where people are maybe a little bit more aware of who they are in their surroundings and then mm-hmm. providing the knowledge and tangible skills that they can use. To- right. Right. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting that there are more, um, there is more writing on it. There, there are more webinars on it. There are more people talking about it. And I think there, there is perhaps also the comfort level. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I need to know this. I'm not sure I know how to, to, how to pursue this or who, who do I say to that? I'm not sure I know this, you know, I mean, there's, there's kind of the, you have to, you have to kind of do this, this honest assessment. Am I doing this as well as I can? I think for most of us, the answer is probably no, probably not. Or probably I am. (laughs) That's, that's Mm -hmm. part of, that's part of the, um, the outreach too. And, and, um, you know, that self-assessment and that, um, time to kind of reflect are just such key components of this work. 
you know, I can give you all the information, but you, you know, you have to apply it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, people like to, to, to equate this with, you know, it's a heart change. It's about making a heart change. And I can't make a heart change for people. Obviously that's internal work, right. but I can work on the mind change and giving you information that perhaps you never had access to before or even thought about before. Maybe it's mm-hmm. never been on your radar and now it is. And now it's just making sure that people will have the tools to, to um, start working on that on their own. It's, it's like learning a new language with anything. You have to, you know, understand the fundamentals and then get to the intermediate level and then get to proficiency. So really, I think for a lot of people, we're working at the fundamental and foundational stage of things. Mm-hmm. And then if they can be honest with themselves and with each other that, you know, I'm not really too good about this or I'm not sure I really care about this, nor do I want to care about this, because there will certainly be people who are are in some of those camps. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say challenge yourself, push yourself. I don't think complacency is okay in an okay place to be during this time. Um, so I think just, you know, really challenge yourself to explore something different and new and how you can continue to be part of this, the conversation and make it relevant in your day-to-day practice and in your day-to-day lives with just communing with people, your family, your neighbors, um, because these are the things that people are talking about as a nation right now. So it's not a, it's not a secret. You can either be part of the solution or continue to be part of the problem. And it, it's, it feels a little bit like a land a, a line in the sand, but I feel right. that's the moment we're in right now. And what's interesting too is is you you say your family and your community, but it's also true for for many people with with uh, employees um, with within the staff itself. You know, there's there's uh, in a lot of communities, obviously you're going to have a demographic mix in in your in your practice staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, this seems like a conversation that could be had. Um, in practices too. Hey, how are we doing with this? Who's who's comfortable? Who can lead this discussion? Who, um, who 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 sees where we need some additional support? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of times, one staff is really the success of the practice. So that would be an, a very important place to start. Is taking an inventory of your own um, microcosm of a world right? and see where you can make improvements there. And that's really where the change happens. It's, it happens at the intrapersonal and interpersonal relationships. And then from there you build out into the community and then into the society and then as a nation. So at all levels, it's needed. Right. That, that it sounds approachable when you break it down that way right <laughs> for for Absolutely. such a for such a large issue and such an important one yeah. uh, dr Chauvet, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your ideas and uh, and for the work that you're doing thank you very much for inviting me for this opportunity it's been great to talk to you Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at 
wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WO Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.